and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 as we now look at the nature of the resurrection body. You might recall last time we were together, Paul talked about the implications or application of the resurrection, and he was saying if the resurrection is true, we should have resurrected priorities, and there we looked at the controversial subject of the baptism for the dead. What is that? And if you weren't here last week, you're going to have to go back and listen to that message. And Paul's bringing up my glasses as we speak. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate that. When we talked about the application of the resurrection, we also looked at a famous verse that many of you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good morals. And so we looked at some of the doctrinal and the life application, um, kind of like how should I live in response to the reality of resurrection? And now we're going we're gonna to deal with the question of how is the resurrection possible? You could call this message about the mechanics of the resurrection. In the Greek mind, they embraced something called Greek dualism that went back to Plato. And they believed that basically the, the soul needed to escape from the body. And so the idea that a body would be resurrected was almost anathema to the Greek mind. They, they couldn't make sense of it. They didn't understand that because they had been taught in their religious philosophical circles that you want to escape from your body, that the body is some sort of prison. But in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you guys might remember that Paul said, no, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In fact, the treatment of the body in Judaism and then in early Christianity kind of continued that and you guys know that there was great care taken of the body. You can see this in the burial of Jesus where he's buried and you know the great care that went into taking care of the body. And the reason that this was done is because in, uh, in the Jewish faith, in the idea of the Old Testament scriptures, there was the hope of the resurrection. Now, you guys might remember that when Jesus interacted with people, even as he went to the tomb of Lazarus, uh, people were, the, the, they believed in a last day's resurrection. Oh, I, I know my brother will rise on the last day. And that's when Jesus famously said, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother is going to rise. And he called to the other side of the tomb. Kind of a preview of what's coming in the future when the Son of God calls to the other side of the grave and he will get an answer now let's let's pray as we consider the resurrection body father thank you for once again each and every person who's here those who may listen to this message later this is a message about hope beyond the grave so many of us have experienced standing in a graveyard and wondering if that's the end of the story if death indeed has the final word and we've often said from this pulpit that Death does not have the final word. Jesus does. And we're so grateful for that. In fact, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so we're so grateful, but we want to understand a little bit more about how the resurrection body works. What will that be? And that's indeed what we're going to tackle this morning. We need all the help we can get. I need all the help I can get. So Father, would you just uh, speak through me? Let it be your voice and not mine. And let us have ears to hear what you would say that might bring comfort and encouragement to your people. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Someone's written, 
There's a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels to every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. The subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no preacher could, bringing tears to the eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. The question that we need to wrestle with is, will he ever be silenced? Will there ever be a time when death will be no more? When he will no longer have a say over our lives? When people will no longer have to live their lives in the fear of death? You know, each time we hear about something happening in our country where lives have been taken, the question arises again and again and again. It's a very personal question. Tennyson, the famous poet, after losing a close friend to death, sat on the seashore. He wrote these words, Oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is now still. Death's sudden arrival many times in life is very hard to take, and it makes us wrestle with some very big questions, uh, questions that nobody can avoid. And the question that really, as Christians, we have to ask is, are there really satisfying answers to this uh, dilemma that we all face? And the answer is there are satisfying answers. Paul opens the section in verse 35. You take a look with me in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, 35, with, but someone will say, how or in what way are the dead raised and with what kind of body that word for body bible students is soma in greek s-o-m-a this is the first mention of body in the section of what kind of body do they come now the question if you're taking notes with me paul begins with a skeptical question about the resurrection how could this be or how does this work some of you may remember that when Jesus was in the temple area, uh, wave after wave of political and religious leadership were coming to him, and one of the groups that came to him was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the uh, aristocratic leaders of Israel. They were the naturalists of the day. They were religious, but they were anti-supernatural in really every area of doctrine. And they denied the resurrection. So they came to Jesus and they knew that he believed it and taught it. So they said, let me tell you a story. There is this woman and she's married to one man and she, that husband dies and then she remarries the brother and the brother dies and then seven people have her. In the resurrection, dun, 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 whose wife shall she be? For they all seven had her. <laughs> Let's see what he said And Jesus said, you don't understand the scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels. And Jesus goes on to say, 
don't you know, have you not read, God is the God of the living and not the dead. At the Mount of Transfiguration, you may remember that when Jesus was metamorphosized, kind of a foretaste of the coming glory, there was Moses and Elijah that appeared on the mountain. Further evidence that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Moses is alive. His body was buried. Yes, the Bible even says that God buried him. But he is very much alive in the presence of Almighty God. Just like every believer of all time, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There is a period of time where we are absent from the body if we die or when we die, but a new body is coming. And a skeptical question is, well, how? What does this look like? And remember the Greek mind, this was hard for them to imagine. Now, when Paul was going around the Roman world and he's preaching in all these different locations, there was nothing in Paul's message that stirred people like his preaching of the resurrection. Let's take a look just at a few examples. We're going to the book of Acts, which is just a little bit back in your Bibles. We're going to go to Acts 17. Paul is uh, in the area of Athens, Greece, a place full of idolatry, full of all kinds of new fangled ideas about what people believe about this or that. And this is Acts 17. Let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, And also some of the Epicurean, Acts 17, 18, and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others were saying, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus, which your Bible say? And the resurrection. Now, as Paul goes up on the Areopagus, up on Mars Hill, where they had kind of a, a place to discuss these things, Paul preaches a sermon and he concludes with these words, verse 30, Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. It seemed like each time Paul would go to the resurrection, people would then have this weird response. And part of this, I think, was because of the Greek influence and the dualistic thought about the soul escaping the body go all the way to acts 24 acts 24 paul had a couple of encounters before governors and kings here's one of them uh, i think this one is before felix the cat or the rat acts 24 look at verse 20 Paul is defending himself. He says, Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. And then finally, over to Acts 26, Paul before King Agrippa powerfully shares his personal testimony of meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he says these words, Acts 26, pick it up at 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand this day testifying both 
to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses, 26, 22, said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, talking about the, uh, the Messiah and his death and resurrection, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Earlier in the chapter, take a note, verse 8, Paul says, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Do you believe Genesis 1-1, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? That God said to light, you're going to be. And light said, okay. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. That the waters, God said to the waters, stop right there. And the water went, yes, master. (laughs) This is the being that we're dealing with. But people have questions about the resurrection. For example, is the resurrection like a bad zombie movie? When you're talking about dead people coming out of tombs after hundreds and perhaps thousands of years, is it something like, come forth, and people are like, like one of those bad zombie movies? Time out. If that's the resurrection, please no. And that's what people were wondering, and maybe you guys hear uh, Bible Answer Man kind of shows, and people call in and say, well, how does it work? What if somebody was blown up in a war eaten by a shark or, you know, bodies do deteriorate. You know, they, they show skeletons and things like this as bodies have been in the ground for not that very long. How could this work? What, is, what are the mechanics? The New Living Translation says, someone may ask, how will the dead be raised and what kind of bodies will they have? Have you seen your Bible where it says someone? We don't know who the someone is. This may be a kind of a rhetorical device, not a specific person in the Corinthian church, but, you know, kind of like if you're giving a speech and you might say, someone may ask, and then you say as a speaker, I'm glad you asked. I think that's what Paul may be doing here. It may not be an individual that he's thinking of, although this may be uh, an issue in the, the Corinthian congregation, but it's a rhetorical device to answer a question about how this could be. Is the resurrection intelligible? Is it intellectually honest? If it is, we should be able to walk it out. We should be able to understand how it works and maybe even see some examples in the natural world. When the body of the founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams, was disinterred, it was exhumed or dug up, it was discovered that roots of a nearby apple tree had grown through his coffin. To some degree, says this writer, The people who ate the apples partook of his body. In short, this will ruin your donut. The food that we eat is part of the elements of the bodies of generations long ago, close quote. And all God's people said, gross. What are you talking about? Well, this may help you diet 
for those of you who are trying to lose some weight. But the question is simply this. We know people are cremated. We know bodies are lost at sea, blown up, etc., etc. Even the example I just read. How will God raise them and, if you will, put them back together? What we have to get out of our minds is putting them back together. This is not going to be a patchwork job. And we'll dig that out in a little bit. Paul's response to the person saying how he opens with, you fool. Verse 36. Uh, it's always good to open an argument. Somebody has a question and call them a dummy. You dummy. Their ears are really open and perceptive. No, I'm just kidding. That's usually not the best way to go. But that's Paul. He says, you fool. The fool is opposite of the wise man. The fool in the Bible says in his heart, Psalm 14:1, there is no God. The fool in this context is one who doesn't take God and the power of God into account. That's the problem with the natural mind. Jesus said, you don't know the, the power of God's word. You don't know the, the scriptures and the power of God. That's your problem, Sadducees. You don't believe in the supernatural God, apparently, who made heaven and earth. Otherwise, you would have no problem with the resurrection doctrine. See, the fool in his heart is the one who dismisses God. He must explain away the parting of the Red Sea and the virgin birth because it's not within his realm. He has, he has made up his mind to dismiss the supernatural. Well, if you do that, you're going to have to just put aside your Bible then. And that's what a lot of people are doing. This idea of fool, aphron in Greek, is one who is stupid, ignorant even egotistical. Sometimes I hear people pontificating about how they believe the resurrection is a metaphor or it was just, you know, the Jews trying to write a story about this or that. And I'm like, just wait until you get to a point where you're going to need this doctrine. It, it, it's easy to be proud when you don't need God, right? But even atheists, have you ever heard them call out to God in a moment of crisis? Oh, we all know. But, but some people want to just sit there and dismiss God and sound like they're smart because they've been on the planet for 40, 50, 60 years, right? And, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying you're a foolish person because you are not taking God into account. Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. God is the God of the possible. Do you believe it? That's who you worship. That's why Jesus walked out of his own tomb. And that's why we have hope beyond the grave. Paul uses something we know to explain something we don't know. And he's going to start with this idea of plant life. He says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is the idea of botany. Paul's used, first example, if you're taking notes with me, is from the world of botanical uh, production. <laughs> I was just, I recently did a wedding and we were in a botanical area. Beautiful flowers. And think about all the different trees and flowers that there are. How many of you ever did a project in school where you did a, you planted something and then you waited for it to grow? Anybody? No, none of you went to school? Okay. How many of you will not raise your hand no matter what I say? 
thank you. <laughs> Although you just raised your hand, so I don't know. But anyway. So you could say it this way. Paul's going to use an example from everyday natural life to show us the nature of the resurrection body. Give us a parallel. That which you sow, 37, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. So you sow a seed. When you look at a seed, a seed is not terribly impressive, right? It's this thing, and you kind of wonder, could any life ever come out of this thing? But you put it in the ground, and you prepare the soil, and you water, and the sun shines on it, and all of a sudden, a little growth starts to happen. I, I planted some grass seed uh, not so long ago, and I waited for the little, uh, the little saplings, the little whatever they call, they're called, the little blades to come up. And I was like, they're growing! They're growing! Look at what I've created! Oh, wait a minute. I didn't create anything. I just put a seed in the ground, watered it a little bit. God is doing the work, right? Isn't it incredible to think of the variety? So many times when we're uh, walking in everyday life, just looking around, we don't appreciate the God of diversity. I.L. Cohen uh, was talking about the, the debate about uh, evolutionary theory. And he said, when the understanding of RNA and DNA really was discovered, when they kind of pulled off uh, the top and began to see the complexity of DNA, he said, the argument over Darwinian evolution should have been over. Because DNA reveals the majesty of our creator. In, get this, today over six million forms of plants and animals. Six million forms. God is a God of diversity. Have you ever watched one of those programs where they show you what's under the ocean? Some of those colorful fish swimming by and they're just, it's just amazing. Our God is a God of diversity and creative power. In the book of Job, he talks about behemoth and leviathan. The things that God created, these majestic creatures uh, that one view believes that uh, the mention of these creatures may be actually ancient dinosaurs by some of the descriptors there as we go through the book of Job on Wednesday nights. This is the God we're talking about. We're talking about a God who created seed and plant life and so forth. We look at a seed, it's not terribly impressive. You look at a dead body, sadly, if you've ever had to do that before, and you have to ask the question, how could life come out of this? How could what is being put in the ground actually come out alive and with a glorified life no less? Well, as humans were dressed at birth in the clothing of the man of dust, says one writer, so Christians will, be, will put on the clothing of the heavenly man in the resurrection. Before the Second World War, there was a grave in Germany sealed with a granite slab and bound with strong chains. On it, an atheist had inscribed, not to be opened throughout eternity. Yet somehow, a little acorn had fallen into some crack, and its outer shell died. Years after, everyone saw a huge oak tree which had, come, which had completely broken up the slab, still having the inscribed arrogant words of the atheist. The new life of the acorn had opened and displayed the power of life. And go, Paul goes into botany or plant life to show us that this principle does exist in nature. 
Jesus is talking about himself and he says, Truly I say to you, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 24. And Jesus said that right on the heels of his own personal death. My death is going to produce everlasting fruit because when I rise, you're going to rise with me. And we looked at the idea that Jesus is the first fruits, more of the harvest imagery as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first of the harvest guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. And so the imperishable Jesus became perishable, says one writer, that the perishable us might become imperishable. If you lose your life, you will gain it back, surely in the end. Amen? This is not the end of the story. And Paul's going to argue that there's a continuity between what is, goes into the ground and what rises. If you put a rye seed in the ground, the plant is rye. And there's a one-to-one correspondence or continuity between the body that dies and the body that rises. You will be you in the resurrection, but not a patched up you, a new you. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, you should be clapping for that. You're going to be a new you. New knees, new back, new neck, new feet, new complexion. You know, uh, as, as life goes on, right, we have our skin gets exposed to the rays of the sun. We, we've got all kinds of issues. We have issues. <laughs> but God, 38, gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. God gives plants or trees their bodies, and he gives us ours also. God made you in the beginning. He formed you in, his, in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Glorious are the works of God. And God is going to remake you, if you will, with a new body, a new you. Probably what you were supposed to be had sin and the curse and death never entered into mankind. Think of how many different plants there are. Just as God did that, so he will do this. So, the, so even though an illustration is given from plant, plant, plant life, I can talk, it does not exclude God's transforming work. God is involved in the harvest, if you will, of plant life, of rain and sunshine. He set it in motion, if you will, and blesses it, and he will do it again in the resurrection. Garland says divine agency is the key. Here's Johnny Erickson Tata. She says, have you ever seen those nature specials on public television? The ones where they put the camera up against the glass to show a dry old lima bean in the soil? Through time-lapse photography, you watch it shrivel, turn brown, and die. Then miraculously, the dead shell of the little bean splits open and a tiny lima-like leg (laughs) root sprouts out. The old bean is shoved aside against the dirt as the little green plant swells. The lima plant came to life because the old bean died. Life comes out of death. And just as the blueprints for the plant is in the seed, so the blueprints for the resurrection are in your seed. What seed? Your DNA. And the power for your resurrection is already resonant in you because Jesus Christ 
lives where? Inside of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's power, and namely His resurrection power, already lives in you. You already have the down payment. Your DNA is the blueprint, and the power of God is already resident within you. Praise the Lord. And you and I are going to rise. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. You can look at John 2, 19 through 21. Resurrection is not reconstruction. It is more like reorganization. It is God making you new and making you like unto Jesus. In the resurrection, Jesus' body was his body that came forth from the tomb. It wasn't a different body. It was his body, but it was now changed, now glorified. Apparently, even he could move through doors. You remember? He shows up in the middle of the room with the disciples and just seems to show up. And there are people that believe in the resurrection that will be able to move up and down and not just horizontally and not just slowly. <laughs> We'll be able to move around and not have some of the laws that hindered us in the past. Jesus' resurrection body is the prototype for ours. There were times when people did not fully recognize him, uh, maybe because their eyes were withheld or maybe because he looked different in some way. We don't have all the answers here, but you guys recognize some of those stories. In fact, uh, when Jesus shows up in the upper room, you remember, he says, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He invites them to touch his body. It was his body. It was the wounds of the cross. So there's a continuity between what dies and what rises. And then Jesus famously said, do you have anything to eat? One of my favorite Bible verses, post-resurrection. And they gave him some honeycomb cereal. No, I'm just kidding. It was, he asked for it was broiled fish and perhaps a honeycomb. I remember years ago, I first did a message on uh, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection body, and I was talking about some of these subjects with one of my sons, and, and I was saying, see, and this verse proves that in the resurrection we're going to eat. And my six-year-old son at the time said, that's so awesome, Dad. It means we can eat tons of cheese. <laughs> can I get a witness? See, some of us have to limit our cheese intake, and some of you have tried that fake cheese, and you're like, ah, ah. everything's plant-based now, right? <laughs> Try this plant-based. I, I don't know. Tons of cheese, apparently, in the resurrection body, and you won't gain any weight. <laughs> the next, next example, Paul shifts from agricultural realities to different kinds of flesh, and different kinds of celestial bodies or glories. Look at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. He's still talking about how the resurrection body will work. But there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. Now we move from plant life to human and animal life. And you can see that uh, fish and birds, for example, are given bodies for their environment, right? So that it doesn't amaze you that a fish is under the water and he doesn't have to go up, back up to the surface. He's been made for that environment. And some of the people in the church were saying, well, how can the perishable take on the imperishable? And how can flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? 
How, how could you make the jump, if you will? How can you move from this environment to that and be okay? Well, look at animal life. Look at the different types of flesh of animals, of reptiles and birds and fish. They are given a body suitable to their environment. And your new body will be suitable to your new environment. That's how flesh and blood will be able to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is because of the change or the transformation. He doesn't stop there. He moves from earth to heaven, from below to above, saying 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly, earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun. We move now from botany to astronomy. Another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Paul now moves to astronomy. The word glory is doxa. The sun shines in its brilliance. The moon has more of a soft glow. The heavenly triad of sun, moon, and stars, the stars twinkle. They each have a varying radiance. And so it will be in the resurrection. In fact, Daniel 12.3 says, And those who are wise, this is a last day's resurrection verse, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Remember when angels show up in some of the uh, narratives of the Bible and people are freaked out and the angels are real? Come on. Come on, VeggieTale fans. They're real shiny. Apparently, one day, you are going to be real shiny. You're going to have your new body. It's going to be a new you, and you're going to have a new shine, a new sheen. Praise God. In uh, the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking about some of these subjects of the end of the age. And he says, then, Matthew 13, 43, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13, 41 through 43. But he is quick to add that the righteous will shine like the sun. These examples, so also, 42, 1 Corinthians 15, is the resurrection body of the dead. It is sown, probably looking back now to the plant analogy, a perishable, perishable body. It is raised how? Imperishable. Right now, sad to say, you and I are perishable. Now, if you've ever bought food that says it's perishable, you know it has a date, Best if used by this date. Uh, we used to have uh, one of our youth pastors here. He'll remain unnamed for political reasons. He could have something in the refrigerator for two or three weeks, and I'm talking chicken and stuff like that, and he would eat it after it had been there for weeks, and we'd be like, what are you doing? Oh, it's fine. And some of you have like an iron stomach, and I, and I understand sort of some of that some of that, but we have a perishable date. It's in fine print on the bottom of your foot. If you ever look really closely. No, I'm just kidding. It's not there. I sometimes joke my lovely wife here was uh, born in Japan. 
My beautiful blonde wife was born in Japan. And it says right on the bottom of her foot, made in Japan. I'm not kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was getting the wife nod right there like, we'll talk later. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll try to recover from that one. Uh, we are now subject to decay. Think of how many industries are trying to fight back decay. Perishability. I use some of the products. You may too, because we're all trying to slow it down, right? You know, put on the moisturizer and try to deal with this or that. But the truth of the matter is decay is still winning. We are perishable. But this perishable will become imperishable, which means no longer subject to decay. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, you go to the dentist, and the dentist shows before and after pictures of this is how you can avoid decay, and this is how you can find out. There's seven tests to find out if you have this particular gum disease, which will make all of your teeth fall out. Aren't you glad you're sitting in the dentist chair right now? Have you ever been in the dentist chair, and the dentist says to you, oh. <laughs> you're like, oh, oh what? Well, uh, you've got, uh, so have you been flossing? How many of you uh, enjoy the, the comedian Brian Regan? He talks about going to the dentist. And he says, the dentist is the one place where I feel like a little kid. He says, you kind of shrink down in the chair, and they say to you, have you been flossing lately? And you're like, he shrinks down, and he goes, not since the last time you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have a shelf life. But when the resurrection happens, we will no longer be subject to decay. We'll have a body that's appropriate for ongoing celestial existence, if you will. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, We know if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We're moving from a tent in the resurrection to a permanent building, baby. You should be able to get excited about the resurrection, amen? Or as the Jeffersons used to put it, we're moving on up. All right, never mind. <laughs> to use the Bible, we'll be in a condition where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more disease, no more death. Yesterday, my wife and I were at uh, Maddie Osborne's 91st uh, birthday party. Sweet lady that we have a long history with. And she was married to a man named Joe, Joe Osborne, who since has gone to be home with the Lord. And they're, they're doing pictures at Maddie's uh, birthday party of, you know, uh, her childhood and teenage years and a bunch of pictures with Joe. And another gentleman that... I got to know uh, years ago named Dick Dale. And Joe and uh, Richard uh, introduced me to the game of golf. I'm not sure if I should be grateful for that or not. But uh, I remember some wonderful times with those guys. And Joe was just an old, wonderful, retired Navy guy. He was San Francisco PD. 
He was very patriotic, just, just this great man of God. And every time he would see me, see me, he would say, Hey, Mikey! Hey, you Mikey! And I would say, Hey, Joey! Everybody had to have a Y on their name. We called Richard Dickey. And it was a lot of fun to be around these guys. And I was looking at pictures of Joe, and Joe's gone. And I started thinking, Man, I miss Joe. But you know what? I'm going to see Joe again. And, yeah. And I was thinking about this message and thinking about a lot of your loved ones and ones that you've had to lay to rest. And a lot of those cases, I've been there with you. And you've been there as we've looked, at the, we've looked to the Lord together. And we proclaim the resurrection in those moments, right? And we ha often had groups of people that we were hoping would hear about the hope of that resurrection in the light of our mortality. You see, the body is sown in dishonor, 43. You could say infamy or disgrace. It is raised in glory. That's the word doxa again. It is sown in weakness is the resurrection body. It is raised in what? It is raised in power. See, if we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 17. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that it enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I remember years ago, Dr. Walter Martin, who was the apologetic Bible answer man of his time and still continues to yield, wield influence in the world. I, I know that I had heard that in his latter years he had diabetes and he had to do the radio program with his feet up. And he said, these bodies that end up embarrassing us, will be changed. And they're going to be changed into a glorious body unto like our Lord. As the story goes, Walter Martin was found dead in a posture of prayer as he sought the Lord and the Lord took him home. This resurrection body, 44, is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, don't think of like a spirit here. Think of a new body or a spiritual body. It's pneumaticos soma. It's the idea of dominated by the spirit, if you will. It's not lacking physicality. It's like Jesus' body, but it's spiritual, if you will. There's a natural body, the one we inherited from our parents or from Adam, and that there's a spiritual body. It's the difference between the natural and the spiritual the natural body of Adam made from the dust of the ground, God formed him, breathed the breath of life into him. The supernatural body, if you will, the spiritual body is going to be different. But God is going to be the one who makes it fitted for the new age. And so Paul winds down by saying these words. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became what? A life-giving spirit. This is a synonym for his power to raise the dead. 
For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life them life, even the Son gives life to whom he wishes. If you have the Son, you have the life. 1 John 5, 12. If you don't have the Son of God, you do not have this life. And you will ultimately perish, sadly. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Paul's sentence reads literally, the first man of earth made of dust, the second man of heaven. Here Paul is looking at origin, one from the dust or human, one from heaven. The ultimate outworking of the context says man has two modes of existence, one human like Adam and one glorified like Christ. When Christ returns, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is what the Bible says. There is a day of resurrection coming. But as is the earthy, 48, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we, brethren, have borne the image of the earthy, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We're going to be like him. I'd like you to turn all the way to 1 John chapter 3 and we're done. 1 John chapter 3. Just almost to the book of Revelation. The reason that this happens is because God loves us and we have ultimate hope. I heard a story of a woman who she knew she was dying of a terminal disease and her pastor visited she had her memorial service planned, the songs she wanted, the scripture she wanted preached on, all of it. And she said, oh, one more thing. I want you to bury me with a fork. And he said, what? Yeah, I want you to bury me with a fork because I want it to be a symbol that the best is yet to come. You see, when we do all these potlucks, pastor and I've been involved in, we'd have the meal and then we always have dessert. This is Christians, right? We know a new body's coming so we can eat a little bit of dessert, right? So, and, and I always think of that fork that goes with the dessert and I want that fork to be in my casket as a sign that the best is yet to come. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See how great a love, 1 John 3, 1, the Father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Every pastor has been taught at the end of a sermon to ask, so what? What does it, this mean to the group that you just preached this message to? Here's what it means. Since the resurrection is true and reasonable and has already happened in the very history in which we live by Jesus rising from the dead, here's what it means to me. It means I can face any challenge this life throws my way with hope. It means I can face any challenge 
that's thrown my way in this life with hope. And that's my prayer for you. Because I know a lot of you, when you hear subjects like this, you can't help but make it personal to your own losses, and that's very natural. And the resurrection tells me I can face any situation or difficulty with hope. I was thinking of pictures, and on my cell phone, uh, I have a picture of my father. Uh, it was a picture of him and my mom at a high school prom where my mom became the prom queen and he was crowned the king of the prom. Uh, I have not seen very many pictures of my dad, so uh, I took a picture of that picture and it's on my phone. And every now and then I just look at it because I wanted to see what he looked like. I, I never really saw him in my life. And I looked at his eyebrows, and they're similar to mine. And, and, I was, and he's 18 in the picture. And I'm like, that's my dad. I have no idea if my dad got saved. I don't know. But if he did, it's going to be pretty cool to see my dad again. And probably see him about the age that that picture reflects. These are some really interesting things to ponder, but there's, there are things that are anchored in the word of God, and they give me hope. Jesus, you are the anchor of our souls, and you are our hope, and we're about to take communion to remind ourselves of how this all happened, that you, you allowed your flesh, you died, you tasted death for all of us, and then you rose to blaze the trail, to set the pattern, to make the way possible for me to experience a resurrection. You are our living hope. And hope is alive for those who are alive in Christ. And I want to put this before you. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you don't have this hope beyond the grave, if you want to know this hope that will help you face every challenge of life, he's available. He is hope but you have to ask him into your life. And it's just something very simple, but probably the most profound moment of all of our lives. Jesus prayed, if it's you, please save me. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead to defeat death of my mortal enemy. I trust you with my soul, with my future body, with all that I am. I want to be an ambassador of hope to others. I turn from my sin. I want to put it away from me and I want to follow you. Would you save me on the inside? Be with me, Lord. Live inside of me. Let me be born again to that living hope. Father, for those who may be confessing for the first time or may be coming back home, and for the sweet, dear saints that are here today, May that living hope encourage them as we face the challenges of this life, but always with an eye on what will last forever.